Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Vin. Uh, I have, uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I have the honor and privilege of preaching to you uh, from Psalm 130. So if you want to keep your Bibles open to this text, and we'll go through it sort of as best as I can, verse by verse. Um, so I've titled this sermon from Psalm 130 as hope is in the Lord. It just happens to coincide with everything that's going on. So God's providence and timing is always perfect. So let me ask you a question. July 20th, 1969, does anyone know why that date is significant? Now, some have shouted out to me in previous services, it's my birthday, I mean their birthday. That might be significant, but I'm thinking like worldwide scale. Maybe your birthday was worldwide scale significant, but... So, July 20th, 1969, it was the day when man landed on the moon. It was that day that Neil Armstrong said those famous words, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Everyone that I've ever spoken to growing up who, who, who uh, grew up witnessing the moon landing, whether it be on radio or TV or they were in school, whatever it is, every single person I've spoken to has said, I've never forgotten that day. It was something that changed the course of history at that time. That's how significant it was. We've already conquered at that time, in the the end of the 1960s, we had already conquered the known world, but to now have the ability now to to travel into the unknown universe was beyond human imagination. Because the belief was, was that humans could now travel to the moon, they were thinking to themselves, imagine where we could go next. There were now almost no limits to humanity. And that was exciting for all. See, it gave new hope to a new generation. So there are three points I want to make in today's message, and they are the crying, the waiting, the hoping. Okay? The crying, the waiting, the hoping. So as we move through Psalm 130, I want to remind us that this is one of the 50 songs of ascents, which I explained last week. A song that was sung by Jewish people as they headed up towards the hill, on the hill, sitting, going towards the city of Jerusalem for the festivals that Jewish people were told to go to. To add to another component to Psalm 130, Psalm 130 is one of the seven penitential psalms. That means it's a psalm of confession repentance and forgiveness. The other penitential psalms, um, if, you, if you want to know, are Psalms 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, and 143. So let's go to my first point, uh, the crying, okay, the crying. For those who know a thing or two about children crying, let's examine this text now just through the lens of children crying. So, you're going to have moments when babies cry, okay? Because they want, when babies cry, they usually want something, right? But there, but there are times when babies will cry with no tears. So it looks like they're crying, but there's an untrained eye, you wouldn't know the difference. But what they're really doing there in that moment is they're screaming out for what they want. And as soon as they get what they want, you know what happens? As soon as you give them what they want, Magic happens. They stop crying. 
Then you have kids that cry just purely for attention. It can stem from because of something they want and they didn't get. But they're so angry, what actually happens is they'll cry in a place where you can see them or at least hear them. They want you to know that they're screaming for that thing that they want. And as soon as, they, you, know, as, soon as you see them, they'll cry all the more. They want you to know they're upset. But then you have the real cries. The first word I would encourage us to highlight here comes um, right at verse 1, and the word is depths. It's out of the depths that I cry to you, O Lord. This is where the psalmist is crying. Not a baby cry, not an angry cry, but he's crying from a dark and deep place. A place that's so deep and so dark, in the middle of these depths, he's crying to a place where, where, in a sense, where no one can hear you cry. The word depths here is best actually understood or best translated as deep and dangerous waters. That's how it's best understood. See, because what we need to remember is the Jewish people at this time were actually land-based people. The Jewish people of this time the, the deep, dark waters is what they feared the most because it was unknown. They hadn't traveled underneath there. They had no idea what was there. See, others also can look at the word depths and have the image of Jonah. For those who know the story of Jonah, Jonah is in the belly of a great big fish. It is only then, when Jonah's in the, in the belly of the fish, does he cry. He cries out loud from inside and when he's at his most desperate does he confess? Does he repent? Does he plead for God's mercy? Only when at that moment. And last month if you didn't read the news or see it on the news, six young, about the age of 30 and under, six young Christian men boarded a Cessna in Calgary. That's a small plane. One of the six young men was piloting the Cessna with his five other friends, and a little over, just a little over 30 minutes into the flight, the plane crashed, killing all six of the young men. Three of the young men were married, two of them had children under the age of one, and one of, them, one of the men was expecting a child. Two of those men I actually knew personally. One of, those, one of the wives was in my life group with Laura back in Calgary. Now we're having parents and families and they're in the depths of their despair. And it is in those moments where a parent will cry out. A parent should never outlive their child. It is out of those depths that the psalmist cries and he cries out to the one and only that can save. He cries out to the Lord. See, those crying actually cannot save themselves, but they need someone outside of their tears, outside of themselves to save them. Like a person on a life raft, floating endlessly in the open ocean. You cannot save yourself, but you need a rescue boat for saving. Your wealth will not save you from the depths. 
Your popularity will not save you from the depths. Even your family and friends cannot save you from the depths. According to the psalmist, and correctly so, it's only the Lord Jesus that can save you from the depths. You see, other religions will tell you, you must do this, 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 and that. And as you do that, it's only then will God even take notice and then decide whether to save you or not. But the question then is, is it how, exactly how many things you need to do and for how long you need to do them will then God save you? But none can answer because for them there's no guarantees. You just do it almost aimlessly. But Jesus offers the gift of salvation for free. But isn't it weird? Don't you find it weird that in today's culture, in our world today, in our society today, it's weird that every time we see the word free, we're suspicious. Oh, what's the catch? Oh, that's too hard to believe. There's nothing wrong because you know what? In this world that we live in, it, I think it's actually easier. Isn't it easier to believe in the idea that if I work for something, then I deserve something in return? That if I work at being good, then I should only get in return good. But the gospel story actually turns this thing upside down and says no one deserves good. Not a single person deserves good. The Bible would dare to say, or deserve death. Because in Romans chapter 3, verses 23, we are told, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We all fall short. It is Jesus that dies in our place, free of charge, and then asks us to put our faith and trust in him, in what he has done. And what he has done is free and enough for you and I. Look, going back to the word depths back in verse 1, I suspect that even for some, the word can give you the feeling of distance, and rightfully so. Um, you get that feeling that God is sort of like far and beyond reach, especially to those who grew up in the church but now find themselves too far from the Savior that they once knew. If that's you here today, but you grew up in the church and no longer. If, if that's you here in this room, if you're watching online, you're listening to this on a podcast, you're listening to my voice, can I say this to you? This one's for you. I want you to know that Jesus knows. He knows. He knows about the hurts that your church experience gave you. I want you to know that Jesus knows how you felt judged Every time you walked into the church doors, when you walked through it, and the judgment that you felt, I want you to know that Jesus knows, you know, that heavy burden that you felt every week, every Sunday, you walked into this room, and you had to act. You had to act at being good. You had to pretend to smile as if, as you walked into this place, you had to be perfect and good. He knows I have no idea if this, makes, if this means anything to you, but this is what I'll say. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you went through that, but please don't give up on Jesus because of my mistakes. 
Because he's waiting for you to come home. If you didn't know, I actually grew up in a Christian family and went to church for at least the first quarter of my life. You know why? Because I had to. I was forced to go to church. Because my parents believed that going to church somehow made me Christian. And at a young age, I left the church and I left the home that I grew up in. Left my parents, everything. It was, it, it was a little over 10 years before I stepped foot back into a church building again. A little over 10 years. You know, coming home was a lot harder than going to church, going back to church. It was harder for me. It was harder because I knew at that time, because I, I was so fixated on Jesus. He had won me over so much. It didn't matter that other Christians in the, Christian, in the church building were questioning, which actually happened, the authenticity of my conversion. It didn't bother me that people were looking at every move I made in the church with suspicion. It didn't matter because Jesus rescued me. Home was harder. You know why? Because I had to face mum and dad every day. I still had to process the guilt and the shame, even though I knew I was completely forgiven. But the first step of coming home was the biggest hurdle to overcome. But you want to know how I knew that I could always come home, no matter how far or for how long I went for? In, that, in, in those years, every now and then, in the middle of the night, about 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. in the morning, my friends and I would walk past each other's houses. But out of all the houses, my house was different. The reason why was this, that every time we passed my house, I noticed that the front light was always on. Always. Now, it could have been a one-off event. You know, maybe mum forgot the light. But I went past my house in the middle of the night for nearly 10 years. And for 10 years, that front light was always on. You see, I always knew deep down, and it was confirmed, that it was my mum who left the light on. And she did it for years, over 10 years, just to let me know, does this signify to me, you can come home anytime. You see, this book, this book that I hold, that I cherish, this book that I hold in my hand, this Bible, is the light that's encouraging you to, to come home. It's pointing you back inside its pages. It will tell you and remind you the love that Jesus has for you and also for me. I love where there were, they're not just words. You see words here, but then it's, it's pointing you to something. It's pointing ultimately to an action that Jesus has done. And that action is it's pointing to a death on the cross where Jesus proved his love. And he proved his love not when you were close to home. He proved his love when you were far from home. That's when he died. I cannot promise you, I wish I could, humanly speaking, but I cannot promise you that every Christian is going to treat you right. But this is what I can promise. I can promise you that Jesus is working in their lives just as much as he's working in your life. And that there are many here today, many here in this room that would love the opportunity to welcome you into this family 
we call Willingdon. The second word I would encourage us to highlight in our Bibles comes at the end, actually, of verse 2. At the end of verse 2, you see this word here. Of my pleas for mercy. You see it right there. Um, the word in the Hebrew is Hanan, best translated as, it's best translated as to stoop down and to show kindness to another. Imagine it this way. It's like an adult bending down to tie the shoelaces of a child. Do you know what is really interesting about, the, about verse 2, the end of verse 2? What I find interesting is why the psalmist does not use the word rescue or salvation. The word mercy has a few other variations in Hebrew, but here in, in Psalm 130, the word mercy is also used in Psalm 151. In Psalm 151, verses 1 to 2, I'll read it for us. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. You see, if you look in the Bible with me, if you look at Psalm 51, uh, it gives you sort of the context behind Psalm, the Psalm 51. It tells you right in the heading. But I'll go through it for those who don't have their Bibles, but also maybe who forgot, who don't know the story. And just a reminder, if you don't have a Bible, I'll try to, I'll get you one. To our volunteers, get a Bible and then say, put it on Pastor Vin's Bible tab. So the context is this in Psalm 51. King David King David is a man, the Bible tells us, is a man after God's own heart. That's what it states very clearly. He's the king. He has everything. But one night he goes up onto the roof of his house, we are told. And there he sees a woman bathing completely naked. And to make a long story short, King David sees her, then sleeps with her. We know her as Bathsheba. King David, a man after God's own heart, gets her pregnant. He then gets Bathsheba's husband killed and takes Bathsheba for himself. Nathan the prophet, who's like the priest of the time, confronts David and tells David about his sin. And out of David's conviction, when he's confronted about his sin, it's Psalm 51 is what David pens. King David, knowing the weight of what he has done, the first thing he cries out for is not rescue. It's not salvation. The first thing he cries for is mercy. The word mercy is the right term to use in Psalm 51, but also in Psalm 130, verse 2, because they are both acknowledging this, that God has been the one offended by our words and by our actions, and he alone is in the place to forgive to rescue, to offer salvation. See, the psalmist is acknowledging that God has every right. God has every right to leave us in the depths of our cry and our despair because we were the ones who got ourselves there in the first place. But out of his mercy, he hears our cries and he saves us. Um, for those who don't know, I have two wonderful and beautiful daughters 
but I've been warned by parents who have teenagers that one day my two daughters will be teenagers and they tell me, you're going to a new world of hurt. But I imagine it like this. This is what I imagine it to be. I imagine that before they ask to go out with their friends to Metro Town, and right before they head out, they're not going to say, I love you. They're not going to say anything. You know what they're going to say? Give me money. <laughs> and to make this story even more realistic, because of inflation, they're not going to ask for $20, which back in my day was like, wow. But by the time they are teenagers, they're going to ask for about $100 to get a cup of coffee and watch a movie. And like a brainless zombie, I'm just going to give them the $100. They have no idea I worked really hard to earn that money, and the $100 in their pocket came out of my pocket. So I'm $100 poorer. But the point is this, there is a cost when we are shown the richness of God's mercy. There's a cost, and he pays that cost. See, the next word I would encourage us to highlight is the word in verse 3. It's the very first word in 3. 3 says the word if. The psalmist knows what he's trying to say is, let me give you a scenario if this could happen. The psalmist knows that if God were to keep a record of all sins, of all people, including people who follow him and do not follow him, if he were to keep a record without forgiveness, he's saying there would be no hope. You can't even stand. The weight would crush us. But the psalmist answers the question in verse 3, and the answer comes in verse 4. But the things I would highlight in verse 4 would be the two words or the two terms here. There's the word but, with you, and then is, forgiveness. The first part here is really acknowledging, okay, so if God were to do this, if it was to store all your sins and, and, and hold them against you, you can't stand. But here's the reality. That's what he's saying. But here's the truth. He's acknowledging of who God really is because the truth is forgiveness might not occur with the ones that we love. Let me, let me explain that a bit more. There might be things that you and I will do that even your parents will not forgive us. There might be things that we'll do, sins, crimes that we commit, where even our wife and the husbands will not forgive us. There might be things that we do and we say that even our children won't forgive us. There were things that our friends won't forgive us. Our co-workers won't forgive us. Our neighbors will not forgive us. In every relationship that you and I have, there is always a breaking point. Is it not? Every relationship. But the psalmist is saying, but Jesus, but not with you. Everyone else, maybe, but not with you. You and I will always find forgiveness in Jesus. If we were to translate, if you were to translate verse 4 correctly, and according to the Hebrew, it is best translated as this, but with you, forgiveness. That's a proper translation. He is so firm and sure about God's forgiveness. There's nothing else. There's no one else. It does not matter what you have done. It doesn't even matter what you're currently doing. 
Jesus' forgiveness. The last word I would highlight then in verse 4 is the word feed. Now, this is, the, the word here does not just mean to be scared, but it's in actually encouraging us to remain alert. Okay, alert. It's like flying on a plane. If you've flown on a plane before and the air hostess gives you the, the, you know, the safety drill, this is how you put on your seatbelt, this is how you put on your life jacket, and then she says, or he says, he starts pointing, they start pointing to the exit doors. Know your exit doors. There's two behind me, two above the wing, and two behind. If you're air hostess, I hope I did that right. But that's the same idea here. The Bible and the psalmist, and the, they're so realistic about our state. Realistic. See, the psalmist knows we will continue to sin. He knows this. Even if you were to take this all on board, you will continue to sin. But he's saying, but remain alert. Know your exit strategy, because if you do not know where your exit strategy is, where your exit doors are, he's concerned about that. You will default to trying to find forgiveness in other ways. Or you will go through the exit doors. You will go as where you were instructed. And the instruction is, you go to Jesus for forgiveness. Nowhere else, no one else. Second is the waiting. There are many words I want to highlight in verses uh, 5 and 6 for us. So many. So here they are. If you look at verses 5 and 6, you're going to see the word wait, waits, waits again, then watchman, going to morning, watchman, morning. Twice, the emphasis, two times here. Okay? If they're going to repeat it, it must be very important. I believe what the psalmist is wanting here. He's wanting to fully experience God's forgiveness. The psalmist really wants out of the depths of his crying. He wants to stop crying. He wants to have his inequities. He, he wants to, that feeling to stop, that burning of the, it, the sins piling up against him. And he knows the only relief he can get is from the Lord. Even though he wants it now. He's saying there, I will wait patiently for it, for the Lord. But here's the problem. Here's another problem that we have to add on top of this, is that you and I are not very good at waiting. If you're anything like me, when, you go, when, when I go to Starbucks, when it's time to pray for the items, what's the first thing I look for? The shortest line. When I'm stuck on Highway 1, when the traffic's really bad on Highway 1, which is all the time, but what do I look for? The shortest line. We don't just do it with things and with circumstances, we also do it with people. Because even a father of two young children, I look forward to the day when they were out of diapers. I look forward to the day when they could walk on their own. I look forward to when they could, when they could start to feed themselves. Oh, the day I look forward to when they get a job. And I look forward to when they move out. 
But we no longer stay in the moment. Even with the ones we love. Knowing that even in the traffic and with people, there's, God is teaching us something good and profound. There is a watch called the Breitling Emergency. It costs anywhere between fifteen dollars to $25,000. If you have one, can I touch it, please? I'm, I just want to touch it. What makes this watch so special? What makes this watch really special? Because it's called the Breitling Emergency. If you went on a hike or got lost, what you then need to do is pull that emergency cord, as you see on the screen, from your watch. What then then does is it sends an emergency beacon via satellite to emergency services. The beacon then sends your precise location and the rescue team will come and get you. You know what's a better solution? Don't go hiking. (laughs) But what's the point I'm trying to make? The point here is this, that even when you set off the emergency cord, the emergency beacon, even when you set it off, you still need to wait for rescue. But knowing, knowing that help is on its way, you can take comfort and peace, can you not? If you know rescue is on its way, and that in your current circumstance, that help is on its way, Horatio Spafford was a Christian-American lawyer in the 19th century. Horatio went through great tragedy. I'll tell you how great. His first son died at the age of four from a fever. He was somewhat of a wealthy man at the time. He had investment property. But it was all burnt down during the Chicago fires of October 1871. In 1873... As a Christian, he sent his wife and four daughters ahead of him to England to be with the famous evangelist D.L. Moody. On the way there, the ship sank and all four of his children died. Only his wife survived. Out of the depths of his pain and of his hurt, Horatio Spafford wrote one of the greatest hymns called It Is Well With My Soul. And I've asked CJ to sing it for us. Thank you. 
There is much relief at the moment knowing that help is on his way. The psalmist describes it as being more than watchmen for the morning. There in verse 6, twice he repeats that. You see, watchmen were like soldiers who kept guard of the city at night. And all night they would stay up to keep watch. But it was the morning when relief would finally come. The psalmist knows that it's still time to keep watch. So he will wait. But the morning will come and there will be relief. Oh, how there will be relief in Jesus. My third and final point is the hoping. There are many words I would love to sort of highlight for us in verses, you know, seven to eight, 
You know, words like, you know, hope, steadfast love, redemption, redeem, you see it all there. But the two words I really want to focus on are the words plentiful and then the words all. What he's trying to say is you cannot exhaust him of all your wrongdoings, of all your iniquities. There's not enough sin in the world. That if you put your faith and trust in him that for, for the forgiveness of sins, then feel and know that relief because Jesus has taken all those sins. He wants you to know that. There's plentiful redemption for all your iniquities. So I'm going to conclude with this final point. Uh, knowing that my mum is heading back to Australia very, very soon, I'm going to tell you a story that sums up my mother. And knowing her... She would dedicate this story to all the mothers out there. It's a story she actually doesn't even remember because I've asked her. But during my most troubled teen years, when I was at pretty much at my worst almost, all during that period, my mum and I got into a lot of arguments. So many, I can't even count them. But there was one argument I remember very distinctly for some reason. But I remember it was bad enough that I remember in the middle of the fight, as I'm, we're arguing, I said to my mother, I hate you. And I meant it. For whatever reason, I asked my mother, I don't even remember how that occurred, but I asked my mother to drive and then drop me off somewhere. A place her and I knew for sure I was going to get up to no good. Without a doubt. But during the drive there, the car is like deadly quiet. It's silent. We're not talking to each other. But I remember very clearly the car in front of us hitting the brakes really hard. And then my mother, at that moment, we're speeding up to hit this car severely, really hard. That as she sees the car brake, she hits the brake, and I hear the tire screech because I'm not concentrating on the front. I'm looking at the side of the window. And as she does that, as the tires are screeching, and I can see, and I look forward, and I see the car, sort of we're heading towards the car. My mother pulls out her arm to hold me back from, so my head would not smash on the dash of the car. But I, but I just told my mother 30 minutes ago, I hate you, and I meant it with everything. Everything. And there she's trying to save her son. I don't care what you've done. I don't even care what you've said to Jesus. What I know for sure, because the Bible tells me so, that without any doubt is Jesus, he's already stretched out his arms to save you. Believe in that. Let's pray. So Jesus, we thank you for stretching out your arms to save us. So Jesus, out of the depths we cry, for those who do not know you, we don't know what maybe what this all is, 
what this all is about by the power of your Holy Spirit or to draw them to your side? Would you help them to acknowledge their desperate need for you? That maybe life isn't as good as it's supposed to be. It's out of these depths, the depths that have come and the depths that will come. We cry out to you. Save them, Jesus. Rescue them. Help them to cry out for mercy. And Jesus, for my brothers and sisters who maybe years ago went to church and now at at odds with you or have turned their back on you, would you remind them? Would you remind them of the truths that you once planted deep inside their hearts that would sprout and grow into something? Would they forget after the bad experiences that they've had at church and the hypocrisy and the judgment and the fakeness of church, would they see past those things and see you? Call them home. Call them home to you, not to me, not to us, to you. Knowing that out of your mercy, you forgive them, that you love them, And so, Jesus, we lift up all our brothers and sisters to all those who do not know you, that they'll come before you, Lord God. And Jesus, if we've been a part of the problem, would you forgive us for our sins of what we've said and done and judged and our life of, our life of hypocrisy, Lord God? Forgive us. So, Jesus, in this moment, would you call uncles and aunties home? Would you call siblings home? Would you call brothers and sisters home? Would you call mum and dad's home? Would you call nephews and nieces home? Would you call grandchildren home? Would you call cousins home? Would you call everyone home to yourself? We beg, we plead at the depths of despair, we cry to you and to you alone, Jesus, for you be the praise and all the glory and that is the name we pray in. Jesus, we thank you and in your name we pray. Amen. So before we head to the song, I want to remind you that as the questions come up, there'll be, there'll eventually be people here in the front to pray with you and for you, elders, life group leaders, pastors, they'll be there, they'll be up in the top balcony as well. If you need to pray for a loved one that has walked away from the church for a long time, if you need prayer for, if you've been and run away for a long time, there's people here to pray with you and for you.